All right, I want to welcome everybody to the master's class here at Life Change Church. Life Change Church. And we are in the book of Genesis, chapters 15, verse 6 through chapter 16, verse 6. We're going to do a lot of verses here today. And we're going to be talking about Abram's righteousness, especially if I can get myself on track and not talking about everything else but my lesson here this morning. I'm easily distracted today, so you guys will just have to be good and not try to distract me, okay? Today, we have an opportunity for God to show us the power of His grace and the power of His silence. His silence. Now, there are lessons for believers in both of these biblical truths. What do you think about God's silence? Oh, my, 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 isn't that frustrating at times that God just doesn't give us answers when we want them? Oh, but it is by the power of God's grace alone that our salvation comes. Not by the works of man, lest he should boast, but by the grace of our Heavenly Father that loves us. It is the power of God's grace that comes to us when we believe in the promises of God, when we believe what God has promised to accomplish in us through Jesus Christ. It is when we believe that Jesus Christ has paid the penalty for our sins and then died and rose again that the power of God's grace imputes righteousness to us. Now it is by the power of God's silence that we learn patience. Oh, that's a tough word, isn't it? Patience. You guys were also patient, right? Patient with God, patient with everybody else. Patience. And it's from the power of God's silence that we learn the value of faith. And we learn to depend on God rather than our own wits and our own strength or the things of, that the world values and believes as material. Now, it is the power of God's silence that creates a test that we rarely pass. We fail this test because we want things on our timing rather than God's. Now, one of the hardest lessons we learn as believers is to wait on God's perfect timing for His will to be accomplished in our lives. One of my life verses is Isaiah 40, 31. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles, and they shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. Now it is in these words that we find God's promise of strength to do the things that He has for us to do if we only learn to wait upon the Lord. It has taken me a lifetime to understand this truth, and I still have to work on it, but it has taken me a lifetime to really understand this truth. Now, the verses that we are going to cover today are a continuation of the story of God appearing to Abram after his experience with Melchizedek and the temptation of the king of Salem. This is what we covered last week. Now, it comes right after God spoke to Abram about his seed, and I'll review those verses with you. It's Genesis 15, verses 4 through 5. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir. Remember, he was worried about not having a seed. But he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now towards heaven and tell the stars if thou be able to number them. 
And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And so that kind of catches us up with where we are in the story. God had made the promise. And so now let's talk about Abram's righteousness. Genesis 15, 6 says, And he believed in the Lord, believed what he had just been told by the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. Now, this is one of the greatest statements in Scripture, and the implications for us as believers are as true today as they were for Abram. And notice that what God tells us about the most important element of Abram's faith. He says of Abram, and he believed in the Lord. In other words, Abram said, Amen to God. He said, I will do this for you. God said that, and Abram said to God, I believe you. Amen, God, I believe it. God says, I'll do it. Abram says, Amen, I believe you. And, and that was counted to him for righteousness. And Paul speaks of this in his epistle to the Romans, in Romans 4, verses 1 through 5. And it says, What shall we say then that Abraham our father as pertaining to the flesh, hath found. For if Abram were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the Scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. So Paul asked an important question. What shall we say then that Abraham, our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? Or in other words, what shall we say that Abraham has found out about uh, the flesh and how it relates uh, to us? And he answers this question by referring us back to God's word. He says, for what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. So God says that Abraham was not righteous based on his works, but because he believed God and God counted that for righteousness. Now, Paul goes on to tell us why salvation is not given to us based on our works. And it says, Now to him that worketh is a reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. So Paul is making this simple statement that if you could work for your salvation, then God would owe it to you. But God never saves by any other means except grace. Nowhere in the Bible will you find somebody that was saved by their works. It is always by God's grace. He has never had any other method of saving. And if you get saved, it will be because you believe God, you accept Christ as your Savior, and you believe that God has provided salvation for you. Now Paul continues by telling us that salvation is given to us by God's grace, and God's grace alone, based on our belief on God. Not belief in God, but belief on God. He says, but to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. So Abram did not work to earn his salvation. It was his faith that was counted for righteousness but it was not faith in just anything. It was not just faith in anything. It's important to know what Abraham believed in order for God to count it for righteousness. Notice that it was not when he believed the promise that took him out of the area of the Chaldees, for that was not a promise that included Christ. 
It was when he believed the promise of the seed, capital letters, the seed, meaning the promise of the coming Jesus Christ to die on a cross, that is when God counted it to him for righteousness. Now, ultimately, it was the same for all ages. It is our faith in Jesus Christ and on what his death, burial, and resurrection means for us that our salvation rests. He is the seed. He is the seed that he was, that was promised to Abraham that would bless the entire world. So it is not mere faith that saves, but faith in Christ. Abraham believed God. He just accepted what God said and he believed God. And that is the way each of us get saved. You must believe that God has done something for you, that Christ died for you and rose again. It is then that God will declare you righteous by simply accepting Christ. Now in the third chapter of Galatians, we have this same great truth. In Galatians 3.3, Paul tells them, Are ye so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? So they were getting all wrapped up in the works of the flesh, and that, uh, that is how they thought they were made perfect, how they were saved. And Paul says, foolish you. Verse 6 of chapter 3 of Galatians. Even as Abram believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So Abraham's faith in the seed, Jesus Christ, is what made him faithful to God, but he was not saved by being faithful. He was saved by believing God. And that is all important for us to see in these scriptures. And then we get to verses 7 and 8 of chapter 15 of the book of Genesis, and God's covenant with Abraham is discussed. And he said unto him, and this is God saying unto Abram, I am the Lord that brought thee out of the earth of the Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit it. And Abram said, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? Oh, this is a great, great story here. Man, I, I love this part, right? So God tells Abram that the reason he brought him out of the earth, the Chaldees, was to give him this land to inherit it. So Abram, he asked, well, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? Because Abram's a very practical man, right? We're all practical, right? Yeah, he believes in dealing in reality, which is something we need. We need reality in our lives, right? We need reality in our Christian lives today. If Christ is not a reality in your life, then there is nothing there. If Christ is just a story, then there is nothing there. If Christ is not a reality in your life, then you are not saved. Our churches are full of members who just play church. You know, it's like when you were a child and the girls always wanted to play house. They pretend that there is a mommy and there is a daddy. Now, many church members pretend there is a Savior that has died for them. They pretend to worship God on Sunday, and then Satan is the reality in their lives the rest of the week. So we see that Abram is really very practical. He wants to know something, and he, he would like to have something in writing. Oh, my goodness. Have you ever wanted something from God to be in writing to you? Oh, God, Keith, I want you to do this now. God showed it to me in writing, so I know for sure that it is what I'm supposed to do, right? So in other words, Abraham was looking for God to take him down to the courthouse and have a notary public put his stamp on this promise, right? 
That's what, that's what Abram wanted. And you know what? God is going to do just that for him. We're going to read about that here in just a second. Now, you might ask, is this something just special for Abram? Does God do this for everybody? Are there times when you wish God would put something in writing for you? <laughs> well, he certainly has, and it's called the Bible. Every promise that God has made for you is contained in God's holy word. If it is God that we believe on, and we believe his promises because he has written them down in his word. He has put his notary public stamp of approval on the words that are in his word. So let's take a look at how God is going to do this for Abram. And remember, Abram didn't have the scriptures to rely on. So he had to come up with another way, right? So let's read verses 9 and 10 of chapter 15. And he said unto him, Take me an heifer of three years old, and a she-goat of three years old, and a ram of three years old, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he took unto him all these, and divided them in the midst, and laid each piece, one against another, but the birds divided he not. So now God told Abraham to prepare a sacrifice. And he was to get a heifer, a she-goat, and a ram. And then he was to divide or split them down the middle and put one half on one side and the other half on the other side. Now the turtle dove and the pigeon, he was not to divide, but he was just supposed to put one here and the other one on the other side. Now this is the manner in which men signed contracts in that day. Now, for example, if one man agreed to buy a group of sheep from another man, they would prepare sacrifice in this manner. The party of the first part would join hands with the party of the second part, and they, start, they stated their contract, their parties, and then they would walk through the sacrifice as part of the sealing of their contract. Now, one saying how much they were going to pay, and the other stating what they would get for their money as they were walking through. That's how they decided what the contract was. So each person declaring what their part of the contract was. In other words, for that time period, it was the same thing as going down to the courthouse and signing before a notary public. This is the way they did it. Now, we, so we see that it is by this process that God is answering Abram's question of how he will know that God's promise is a reality. God is using the legal procedure of Abram's day. Now, it's not the only place in the Bible where this is talked about. Jeremiah 30, uh, 34, 18 gives us another reference to this custom. And it says, And I will give the men that have transgressed my covenant, which have not performed the words of the covenant, which they had made before me, when they cut uh, the calf in twain and passed between the parts thereof. So you see this, this custom was also being done. Now notice, this was not just a method used by the Hebrews. In fact, if you think about it, that's pretty obvious because Abram was the only Hebrew at the time, right? Yeah, so, so this custom was around before the Hebrews, right? So, no, this was a custom among many of the people of that day. So Abram got everything ready according to God's instructions. And we go back to chapter 15, verses 11 and 12, when we continue the story. And when the files came down upon the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and lo... And horror of great darkness fell upon him. Oh my. And notice that God tells us a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and lo, and horror of great darkness fell upon him. So this means that Abram is paralyzed in sleep and put aside. Now, if God is supposed to be making a contract with Abram, 
it would seem strange for God to put Abram to sleep, right? How could Abram go through the parts of the animals and declare what his obligation under the contract would be if he was asleep? Think about that for a little bit here. The answer is that this is an unusual contract. God is going to walk through the sacrifice because God is promising something. But Abram is not going through because Abram is not promising to do a thing. Abram just believed God. That's all. God's promise was unconditional. So God is the only one declaring anything, so he's the only one that walked through. Now that is exactly what took place when God sent his son. God the Father so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, and the son agreed to come to the earth and die for the sins of the world, your sin and mine, that whosoever should believe on him, simply accept his gift, might not perish but have everlasting life. And and we were not even there 2,000 years ago to make this contract with, with God, right? But God the Father and God the Son were there, and the Son went to the cross, and He died for our sins. We were paralyzed by our sin, and we could not promise anything. Yet God provided salvation for us. We didn't have to promise anything. Abram did not promise anything either. This is a demonstration of God's grace that we are seeing here, right here in the Scripture. Abram receives this promise of a son, a promise of a nation, a promise of the seed, Jesus Christ, and he receives it unconditionally. Abram doesn't have to do anything. This is God's grace. It is being awarded by the favor of God and merited by any work that Abram could have done. Now, God did not say, Abram, if you will just promise to say your prayers every night, I'm going to do this for you. And then if Abram ever failed to actually say his prayers on that night, that contract could be broken, and therefore God would not need to make his part good, right? So that's not what happened. No, God said that he would do his part. And he is asking man to do just one thing, to say amen to him, that is to believe him. We are to believe God and believe what he has done, for to believe God is salvation. Now, God's response to Abram's question of how he would know these things to be true involved a ceremony, and then it involved prophecy. God is telling Abram what he is going to do as part of the contract. But in the next set of verses, he goes a step further and tells Abram what will happen to his descendants. And Abram can know these things will be true, not just because of the legal ceremony performed by God, but also because of the prophecy that God provides him. Three areas of God's will were involved in what was provided to Abram. Oh, some of this is pretty contentious now. Better pay attention. All right. So the first was the permissive will of God. Oh, do people have trouble with the permissive will of God? Verses 13 of chapter 15. And he said unto Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. So when God tells Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, this is the permissive will of God. God didn't want this to happen, but he allows it to happen. So 
It just means that God allowed the Hebrew people to be put out of the land. And actually, there's a whole lot of things that led up to why that took place. But it, it is a permissive will of God that he allowed it to happen. Actually, God allows it to happen three times because the Israelites were kind of hard-headed in all of this, right? This is the first time. And here uh, God is talking about it being with the Egyptians. The 400-year time frame is with the Egyptians. And God adds this, that they shall afflict them 400 years. Now, notice that it is also prophesied that they return back to the land. And of course they did. And, and they did that when Moses brought them out of Egypt. Now, the second time was when the Jews were removed from the land, and it was the Babylonian captivity at that time. And they were carried off into captivity, and they returned after 70 years in bondage. And then the third time occurred in A.D. 70. Jerusalem was destroyed, and the Jews were scattered. Now, I'm going to make another controversial statement. They've never returned from that. Their current presence in the land is by no means a complete fulfillment of Scripture. But according to the Word of God, they will indeed come back someday just exactly as it has been prophesied. It is the permissive will of God that often confronts the believer and the unbeliever with some of the toughest questions that we face. Oh, I'd love to spend the whole day on talking about the permissive will and, and the perfect will and other today, but we don't have time to do that. I'm just going to make the statement, okay? So we look at things happening around us, and we ask a tough question. Why do bad things happen to good people? And why do good things happen to bad people? Oh, if God was just, why does that occur? You know, there are times that our limited understanding of the events that are allowed by God and God's plan for our lives that simply defy our ability to explain. I can't explain why God allows things to happen. Why do people get sick? Why is Satan allowed to exist at all? Why doesn't God just speak him out of existence and just solve all of our problems? I mean, if God would do that we'd all be just perfect if Satan wasn't around to lead us into temptation, right? Uh, that, old, that old saying, uh, the, uh, the devil made me do it, right? We'd be just perfect if it wasn't for, for Satan. Well, the answer to that is that we would be corrupt even without Satan. And that's been demonstrated multiple times in the Bible and will be demonstrated in the future as well. So that's what the whole millennial kingdom is about, uh, the thousand-year reign of Christ. It's a show man that he would be corrupt, even without uh, Satan. Because Satan's going to be tied up for a thousand years. And we still get me. Yep. Verse 14 says, And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterward they shall come out with great substance. So in his sovereign will, God permitted the Israelites to be persecuted and enslaved in Egypt. Now why did he do that? God doesn't always tell us why, yet in Abram's case, he's pulling aside the veil to give his servant a glimpse of the coming tragedy and a promise of an ultimate triumph for his seed. Now next, there was the personal will of God. You have the permissive will of God, and now we have the personal will of God. Verse 15 says, And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace, and thou shalt be buried in a good old age. 
So it was God's will that Abram would one day die, but he would die in peace. And we Now we look at death as probably the worst possible disaster that could overtake us, right? However, God's view of death, at least for the believer, is really quite different. Death is not something to be feared, but welcomed when it comes to God's good, acceptable, and perfect will. So next there was God's preordaining will. We've had the permissive will, the personal will, and now the preordaining will. Verse 16 says, But in the fourth generation they shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. So God's view of human affairs is really so different than ours. Man's history tells us of the names of the Egyptian kings and of their exploits and their accomplishments, kings that knew not Joseph. God ignores them all in his scripture. The only hint that God gives of the long delay is the iniquity of the Amorites. God tells Abram, but in the fourth generation they shall come hither again. Now, four generations after Israel's time in Egypt, God brought the Hebrews back to the promised land. Now, what were those four generations of descendants? The Bible tells us that it went from Levi to Kohath to Amram to Moses, and with Moses, the long, silent centuries of suffering came to an end. Now, as those years rolled by, God watched the rise of the Egyptians, the rise of the Amorite iniquity, and in the end, God had the final say in human affairs. We know what happened to the Amorites, right? So the specific land that was promised is the next thing that we're going to talk about. So God is getting ready to tell Abram the totality of his promise of the land. So first, God provides the guarantee of the land promised to Abram. Verse 17 says, And it came to pass that when the sun went down, and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between the pieces. All right, so now we're back to those pieces of uh, the animals being separated, and Abram had divided the carcasses just as God had instructed, and God told Abraham that he would do his part of the contract. He's already told him now what my part of the contract is going to be, and he also provided Abram with prophecy to provide even further proof of uh, the truth of his words, and now he was going to complete the ceremony by walking through the parts of the carcasses. And it is the smoking furnace and a burning lamp that represent God. The furnace speaks of judgment, and the lamp speaks of Christ. And those are what pass through, and that's God passing through. Now once again, it is important to understand that at this point, Abram is still paralyzed in sleep. It is God alone that will walk through these parts. It is on God alone that the contract of the land depended. Abram was a passive recipient of it all. In no way did the fulfillment of the promise depend on anything that Abram did. And then God spoke of the greatness of the land. Verse 18, it says, In the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land, from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates. Ooh, now I looked at a lot of maps, and Israel has never occupied that much territory. So God promises Abram, Unto thy seed have I given this land, from the river of Egypt, unto the great river, the river Euphrates, which means that from the Nile unto the Euphrates, it would stretch on a, in a broad sweep across all that land, taking in literally 300,000 square miles of territory. And this is the land that they have yet to fully occupy. For even at the height of Israel's power, 
they only occupied some 30,000 square miles. And right now it is land that is claimed by the Arab nations. But they've been granted 300,000 square miles. But now notice something very important. God tells Abraham, unto thy seed have I given this land. Now notice the past tense. Up to now it has been I will give. Now it is I have given. Not just the well-watered plains of the Jordan, not just the land of Canaan, but Sinai and Canaan and the Fertile Crescent and Arabia. It is all yours, Abram, right across to the Euphrates River. So God blessed Abram for his faithfulness. God is waiting to do the very same thing for you and I. When we return unto God, which is his, when we are obedient to his will for our lives, he has a much bigger shovel that he will use to return blessings unto us. Luke 6.38 says, Give and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down and shaken together and running over, shall men give unto your bosom. For with the same measure that you may be Without, uh, with all, it shall be measured to you again. Now next, see that after all of this, after the promises and the guarantee that God gave to Abram, and after Abram believed on God and his promises, Abram is given a test. And it comes in the form of the silence of God. Oh, does Abram get into trouble? You know, chapter 16, when we get into it, as we get into it here, it's just one of those chapters that you, as you read it, you just are compelled to say, oh, come on, Abram, you know better than that. Look what you just went through. Look at everything that you just did. You know better than to do what you're doing, right? But now the reality is he just did what most of us do. When God is silent and we don't have the patience to wait on God's perfect timing, what do we do? We take matters into our own hands, right? Yeah. Okay, God, uh, you must have put this here for me to, to solve, right? Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm going to solve that problem. And you see how smart I am, God? I solved that problem. Yeah. You know, the first thing that we have stated here is the problem that's facing Abram. Chapter 16, verse 1 says, Now Sarah, Abram's wife, bare him no children. And she had a handmaid, an Egyptian, whose name was Hagar. The problem was that Abram and Sarah had no children. Now, the solution proposed was one brought up by Sarah using her own wits, her own methods, rather than her dependence on God. Now, it was actually an Egyptian solution. Hagar was a legacy of Abram's sojourn down into Egypt. Abram came away with two things that continued to cause him problems after he left Egypt. The first was wealth, and the second was Hagar. Unfortunately, it was easier for God to get Abram out of Egypt than it was to get Egypt out of Abram. Okay? Now, if you remember, we said that Egypt is a type or a symbol for the world in the Bible. And just like it was hard to get Egypt out of Abram, we find it hard to get the world out of us. So the years pass, and faced with the problem of Sarah seemingly being unable to give him any children, even though God has promised to give him some, before Abram begins to look, around for other possible alternatives. And he knows that God has promised him a seed, and Abram believes that what God has promised will occur. However, it still hadn't occurred yet. And God did not tell Abram exactly how it would occur, 
just that it would occur, right? So Abram, he begins to ask himself questions. Well, now, did it have to be Sarah that his heir would come from? Oh, oh, now we're getting into trouble. Did God actually say that it would be Sarah from which his family would come from? Oh, so Abram begins to reason using his own mind. And that is when he gets into real trouble. Romans 8, 7 says, Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So Abram is using a, his carnal mind to solve the problem, instead of on waiting on God to deliver on his promise. Okay, now that we know the problem, let's see what the proposal is that uh, uh, Abram and Sarah came up with. Verses 2 and 3. Sarah said unto Abram, Behold, now the Lord has restrained me from bearing. I pray thee, go into my maid. It may be that I may obtain children by her. And Abram hearkened to the voice of Sarah. And Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian. And after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan, and gave her to her husband, Abram, to be his wife. Now notice that Sarah tells Abram, I pray thee, go unto my maid. It may be that I may obtain children by her, and Abram hearkened unto the voice of Sarah. Oh, now, you know, I'm just going to get myself into all kinds of trouble here. But as husbands, we often receive the very best advice from our wives. Did you mean to say that's true? Amen? Yeah, I bet you wouldn't say no in this class, right? Yeah. Now, we don't always listen to that advice, but that doesn't mean that the advice was bad. And I'm sure that Sarah had probably given a good deal of wise counsel to Abram in the past. But this time, her counsel was an absolute disaster that has extended over 4,000 years, and it is still a mess that we are dealing with today. Now, it is important for us to note, now we'll talk about that in the next, uh, next few weeks, but anyway. It is important for us to note that what Sarah suggested was the common practice of that day. Under the code of Hammurabi, which was the law of that day, when a wife could not bear a child, it was acceptable for Abram to marry a slave. And then when a son was born to her, Sarah could legally make him her son. But now it's also important to understand that this was not approved of by God. God had established the marriage bond as far back as Adam and Eve, and it was between one man and one woman. And all of these other modifications, such as the harems of the king, they're recorded in the Bible as part of history. But you never see that God approved of any of it. And this was Sarah's idea, and Abram listened to her. Now this is a good lesson for us as a church. How many times do you see a church or even a family struggling to make things work like we are and God seeming to be silent or at least not working fast enough for us to strike down all those doing the evil thing and get them out of our church and so that we can go on to being the right kind of Christians that we ought to be? Only having good people in our church, right? Well, we're not hospital for sinners, are we? Now I'm, now I'm being facetious. But anyway, yet instead of waiting on God... Because God wasn't working fast enough, we choose to bring in some worldly solution, and we get results. 
And of course, they are the results of the wrong kind, and they are the kind of uh, results that lead to split churches and destroyed families. So it was the same for Abram and Sarah. It was not long before they had to pay the price for the choice that they had made with Hagar. Verse 4 of chapter 16 says, And he went unto Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress, meaning Sarah, was despised in her eyes. Now notice what happens. And when she saw, meaning Hagar, that Hagar had conceived, her mistress Sarah was despised in her eyes. So as soon as Hagar saw that she was able to do something for Abram that Sarah had not been able to do, the peace and harmony in Abram's family was shattered. And it would not be resolved again for another 16 or 17 years. Such is the price we pay when we use our own wits to solve our problems rather than depending on God. We go to verse 5, And Sarah said unto Abram, My wrong be upon thee. I have given my maid into thy bosom, and when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her eyes. The Lord judged between me and thee. Now, notice Sarah's reaction. And Sarah said unto Abram, My wrong be upon thee. Now, it is a basic truth of marriage that every husband learns very quickly when the wife is not happy, nobody is happy. Right? You men agree with that too? Amen? All right. Don't get yourself in trouble. But, uh, but I, I'd agree with that. So, faced with the attitude from Hagar, Sarah seems to be implying that Abram is condoning the actions of Hagar and she rebels against it and gives him a tongue lashing. So Sarah was thinking with her heart, and somebody had to be blamed for it. Abram just happened to be the target. Now, there is no question that Abram had given up his position as the head of the family in this situation. But Abram was not the only target. Verse 6 says, But Abram said unto Sarah, Behold, thy maid is in thy hand. Do to her as it pleaseth thee. And when Sarah dealt hardly with her, she fled from her face. You know, the fact that Hagar fled on the persecution of Sarah seems like a natural reaction, right? If you're being persecuted, you're going to flee. But that seems to be the whole point of the silence of God. Every person in that family was doing the natural rule thing. They were reacting as the world reacts to a test that had been presented to them. Abram acted naturally when he married Hagar. Sarah naturally resented her maid for acting superior to her. And Hagar reacted naturally when she fled. Now the test of life and the silences of God, they come to us as believers to give us an opportunity to act spiritually rather than naturally. We are to be obedient to God's will and find our solution in His perfect timing rather than to find our solutions in the pop culture of this world and at the pace of, I got to have it now, I got to have it all right now. Instant gratification that is naturally sought by the lost people all around us. Hagar is running from the anger of Sarah was a natural reaction. After all, she was an unsaved Egyptian. And the really disappointing element in all this was Abram. Abram failed in several ways. First, Abram surrendered his headship to Sarah. And then Abram followed her advice into creating the problem. And then Abram allowed Sarah to persecute the poor maid until she had no other option but to leave. So for Abram, there was no excuse. Now, you might find an excuse for everyone else, but Abram allowed all of this to happen. In fact, he was a willing participant in it. 
Abram failed as the head of his home. Now, this is the case in many lessons presented to us in the Bible. It is usually what we fail to do that brings the problems to us. It is the priest and the Levite failing to render aid and passing on the other side of the road, leaving the injured traveler to lie in the road. And it was the rich man who fails to heed the call of the Lord to sell all and then walks away to lose life everlasting. All of those acted naturally instead of spiritually. And the lesson for us is to look at what we are failing to do in our own spiritual lives. Are we neglecting the role that God has given us as a husband and wife? Husbands, do you love your wife as Christ loved the church? That is a high, high standard. Do you love your wife as Christ loved the church? And wives, are your eyes on the things of the Lord rather than the wants of the physical world? Are you both the examples of godly parents that God wants for your children? Now, in our scriptures today, the test of the silence of God brings into focus a Hagar that failed as a maid, a Sarah who failed as a mistress, and an Abram who failed as a man. Now, these failures come with a price. The price of Abram and Sarah's failure was that Hagar, the Egyptian, fled. She fled back to the world from which she came. Now, what an opportunity for Abram and Sarah to have shown Hagar about the true and living God to lead her to a faith that brings everlasting life. But instead, what happened? She was treated worse than a piece of furniture by two people who were supposed to be examples of a different life, a stronger life, a life filled with the power of God. And this is the price of Christians behaving in the manner of the world. When our lives are no different from those around us, when our families fall apart because we allow self to become more important than God, and when the possessions of this world become more important than obedience to God, the result is that the lost will flee from the very solution that will bring them power over the sin in their lives. Why should they want what we have if we're just like them? Don't let your failures to be obedient to God drive someone to an everlasting death in hell. Find God's perfect will for your life and show the world the power and the love that resides in you. Show them what God can do for them. Amen? Amen. Amen.